listening to First Church Charlotte. Greetings to all of you here today. I think I blew my voice out preaching in the first service. So if it's not good, you can blame them. Because they were ready to preach, and so uh, it's not even my fault, and I blame them. And so great to see you all. Uh, I know we have guests here today. Thank you for trusting us. Uh, We want to host you well. We're going to read one uh, passage of scripture. You will know it. Um, You can remain seated since it's a short passage. You will know this. John 14 and 12. If you've been around church at all, you've heard this uh, preached about, quoted, goes like this. Jesus speaking, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, The works that I do, he will do also, and greater works, greater works than these he will do, because I go to my my Father. Now, this is a very big statement to make, and if you were to hear me make this statement, you would be right to perhaps throw a little shade at me. Uh, It almost sounds, shall we say, absurd. To imagine someone saying they're going to do greater works than the Lord Jesus Christ seems absurd. Uh, I would never say that, and I'm sure you feel the same way. And uh, if you're the kind of person who would say that, you should either be a politician or you should get you some lithium, and that'll just smooth you right now. Uh, (laughs) uh, All my medical people had a good laugh at that. So I, 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 I confess this is strong language for any of us to imagine applying to ourselves yet it isn't you and I saying this about ourselves right this is the words of Jesus inviting us to pursue something that uh, is is beyond our understanding to reach for something that is beyond our comprehension to do a work that is greater than God or the, greater than Jesus did while he walked this earth. Uh, I, would, I would very quickly try to talk myself and anyone else out of that claim. And yet here is Jesus making this audacious claim that we often quote and we often celebrate. Uh, it is almost as though he needs you to believe that through him you can do greater things. It's almost as though heaven needs you to have a challenge placed right in the middle of the gospel to raise your set of spiritual expectancies, your set of spiritual ambitions. And if the Lord will help me, I am going to try to follow in that same style. And I'm going to try to awaken within you uh, some type of the spiritually heroic some way in which you believe you do greater things than you ever uh, dreamt that you would do because God said you could, number one, and number two, your world needs you to do it. Let me say it this way, your world needs a hero. I'm going to preach from this subject today, heroes needed apply here. Heroes needed apply here. Are you going to preach with me for a moment or two here? All right. So we, all of us, have in our in our own kind of cultural inheritance, we have this 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 heroic ideal, and we have this heroic image. Uh, most of the uh, popular movies that are made nowadays are a celebration of uh, the heroic, uh, largely a celebration of superheroes. Which, for the life of me, uh, I am not particularly a, f- a fan of the American obsession with uh, superheroes. But I can see how they would be attractive because, first of all, they live in a world where you know who is good and who is bad. Just look at their costume. And when you look at their costume, you automatically know who is good and bad. So there's no ambiguity. Everything's simple. And then people can do things that none of us can do. And they do it before breakfast without trying. And that would be awesome. But that's not enough 
That's not even an interesting story. What makes it interesting is in despite of the fact that here is a person with unique powers, they are countered by enemies that have equal or almost equal, seemingly at times greater powers. And so they cannot overcome through power. The superhero always has to have uh, some character demonstrated that allows them to win. Uh, Even uh, the superhero movie has the superhero almost beat at the end of the movie and the music is going all symphonic on you and there's explosions and destructions and then at the last moment when the Hydra character is about to destroy uh, Robin he pushes himself back up and he fights and he wins and like oh I ran out of popcorn we crave the idea of the heroic. Uh, we, all of us, in our, our, our memories, um, in the way we honor elders, uh, we crave uh, the, the heroic. This is a human thing, and you'll find it across all cultures. Um, the PBS did a series of the 100 Greatest American Novels, and they addressed this issue of how we, we seek to understand and know uh, ideals through these stories, through these narratives. And there were uh, several quotes that I noted down uh, after the series was done. And they, they were doing, uh, interviewing authors and poets and philosophers and psychologists. And, and here's some of the quotes from that. Uh, a hero is who we all wish we were if we didn't have our own personal limitations. Or I think when we hear heroes or see them, or uh, read about them. We think about qualities we wish we had, qualities of courage and and strength and fortitude and and bravery. Uh, Another quote, I I think we aspire to everyday heroes because we wish to be them. In moments of great tragedy, we see people drawn to firefighters or emergency workers or people who went beyond their job. They rushed in where even angels fear to tread. As a nation, we have just celebrated uh, the memory of September 11th. It was a, a great tragedy, and we don't celebrate that it happened. Uh, we celebrate the heroes who gave their lives to save others. And in those two burning towers uh, in New York City where the emergency workers knew they were going to fall because they train for fires in structural spaces and they know that in heat steel loses its structural integrity. They knew the buildings were going to fall. They just didn't know if they would be inside when they fell. And even so, uh, they went back in and let out more people. This is a celebration of the hero, whether it was firefighters or EMTs or police officers, first responders of any kind. They went back in and we remembered them as a nation. We all of us hope that in moments of great distress, we would look within ourselves and not find ourselves wanting. We all of us hope that there is uh, within the capacity for the heroic. Uh, One of the writers uh, in the series I mentioned said this, we'd all like to believe that there is a hero gene somewhere in all of us. The ability in a moment of distress to make a difference. Uh, I believe that your world needs a hero. Now, I know that sounds strange to think because none of us really think that way. We don't exalt ourselves and think of ourselves in heroic language, and, and, and that's probably a sign of you know good sense. We don't consider ourselves that way, and if someone were to apply hero language to us, we would find ourselves kind of distancing ourselves. No, 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 I just, I, I don't really see myself that way, but I want to speak spiritually here for a moment, and I want to say this. The reason why Jesus said things like, if you believe believe on me, greater works than these you will do. The reason why Jesus said things like that and the reason why Jesus said that he would go away and it would be good for you for him to go away because his spirit would come to you and you would be transformed and you would no longer need to be afraid of the things of the flesh and this world. You could live as a spiritual example. You could live as a walking, living, breathing 
testimony, you, through the transformative power of the Spirit, could become a light set as a city upon a hill. You could make a difference in the world. It's almost as though God decided your world needs a hero and he nominated you. What do you mean by that, preacher? What are you trying to say? Well, his promises are so broad, so high, so deep. They are continually inviting you to do to think you can do things you never dreamt that you can do. His promises are always inviting you to speak to the mountain and say, be cast into the sea. You never thought you could move a mountain. You're not even a mountain man. And here is the Spirit saying, speak to the mountain. Here is this invitation to rebuke the devil and he will flee. What do you mean the devil will flee? Here is this invitation to pray for healing, to pray for revival, to pray. God thinks your world needs a hero and he has nominated you. And he said he would fill you with his spirit and he would place his his anointing upon you and he would place his words in your mouth. God placed you in your world and then he said you can do it. I want all of you to be awakened to a spiritual possibility that God's plan was always to use your transformation to show his glory. I want to awaken you to a possibility that God's revealing of glory was not about him revealing a light show, but about you revealing a life change. It may be that the glory of God, the power, oh, I'm going to preach here a little bit. You might as well go ahead and get with me. The power of God is more perfectly manifest in the transformative power of God in our weakness than it is by a demonstration of his power and authority or your strength and authority. God's in the business of taking ordinary people and doing extraordinary things according to his will. And God would like to invite you to be a part of the heavenly program of testimony and demonstration and miraculous power among the people of God. God would like to use you. Now, I know you don't like to think this way. You, you know, just talk about, oh, it's just little old me, and I just want a cabin on the backside of glory. There ain't no cabins on the backside of glory. There's only mansions. Now, you might could be homeless in glory if you're lucky, but I promise you my mansion's big enough that when you, well, that sounds vain, but uh, let me see. My mom's mansion is big enough that you could come and live in one of her guest suites and she would never even know you were there. In other words, there will be no homeless people in heaven. You're going to make it not because you deserve it, but because God made a way. You're going to make it not because you had some magical formula, but because Christ became your covering. There is the potential for the heroic in every one of you. Further, I want to say the power of the Spirit is God's plan for you to step into a realm that you do not understand by way of the flesh. And the Spirit is God's invitation for you to work on a level that you do not readily expect in the flesh. And yet it is there and it is available and it is seeking vessels that it can feel. God's looking for you and nominating you for the heroic in your world. I want to suggest to you there is a potential for the hero in all of us, not just the most prayerful of us. Not just the most powerful of us. Not just the most mighty of us. Not just those of us who know a good bit of the scripture or some of the scripture or a little bit of the scripture. Not just people who can teach a Bible study. Not just people who are comfortable with the microphone. There is a potential for spiritual heroism in every one of you. In fact, God delights in using the least of the kingdom to bring about his glory. So the Bible is a continual 
demonstration of how the lowly become the mighty. And so I want to, as a way of example, I want to try to pick a group of us that we would not think of anything heroic arising out of by all the evidence. And I'm not going to pick a group by any ethnic background because uh, that would be absurd. I'm not going to pick a group by any, uh, depending on how much money you have, because that would be absurd. We don't want to get in the business of judging people by uh, their social place. We don't want to judge them by their ethnic background. We don't, judge, we don't want to judge them by whether they're male or female, old or young. We want to let character count. Can I have a big amen in the house of God? We want to judge by the value of the character, not the uh, lies that you may have inherited. And so I don't want to pick any group like that because that's dangerous. I want to pick a group that I know a lot about because I have been one of this group, and that is the group of young adult males. Young adult males do not seem particularly heroic. Um, we call them everything from uh, juveniles uh, uh, to, uh, you know, <laughs> frat boys. And, <laughs> um, you know, young adult males are really um, just needing to be civilized so they can have value in the future. Uh, because if you are raising a young adult male, you know they are barbarians. Y'all must not have many boys in your house because y'all y'all don't know. You have to, is my, you have to tell young adult. But anyway, let me move along. Uh, <laughs> frat boys get a bad reputation, perhaps deservedly so. The the news media is full of dumb things that frats have done, particularly you know, uh, uh, shameful in some cases, embarrassing in some cases. Um, gender and age uh, is very uh, statistically important in uh, the prediction of crime. In 2014, um, males c- uh, accounted for two, uh, se- almost 75%, I should say, of all arrestees in uh, America, and over 80% of all violent crimes were done by uh, a young adult male. A prison statistics tell the exact same thing. Males account for 93% of U.S. prisoners. Uh, furthermore, half of all homicides committed in America are committed by young men between the ages of 15 and 29. They only make up about 20% of the population, but they commit over half of the homicides. We don't really think highly of frat boys when they come tearing by you revving their hopped up car, or when they're hanging out on spring break determined to have a good time, or when they're talking about their favorite team, or when they're pushing each other in the sports bar. Uh, It would be good for us to try to have empathy for them because they're just like everyone else. They're afraid of not being important. They're afraid of not having any value. They're afraid girls won't like them. They're afraid they're going to be broke forever. They're afraid they're going to live in mom's basement forever. They have a lot of pressure upon them, so give them a break. But you would not instantly go by a frat party and think, oh, those are some good boys. You go by and you think, my God, I hope they stay in their yard. (laughs) Um, And yet, out of this group comes heroism. Uh, My first experience with bullying uh, older boys as a young boy when I was, I was probably uh, 10 or 11. It was the first time my parents ever let myself and a friend of mine go to Eastland Mall by ourselves. So I had to have been around that 11 age. And we rode our bikes up there and we went to Eastland Mall. Eastland Mall is gone. It used to be right over there. Um, I grew up right by Eastland Mall. I grew up right by the church. That's why I'm going to heaven and you're 50-50. Just having fun. Um, so I, 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 we rode up there and we had asked for money because we didn't have any money and we were going to go to the food court and we wanted to go to the pizza place there, Sabaro's, and uh, we were 10, 11. We rode our little bikes up there and we got to Sabaro's and we went up and got in line, just nerve, first time, you know, kind of out by ourselves and we got in line and they gave us those huge, delicious looking pieces of pizza because the thing about mall pizza is it looks better than it is. Don't tell anybody I said that, but it actually looks amazing but then it needs salt and something on it. It's just lacking. And, uh, but this, you know, we didn't have taste buds. Teenagers can't taste food. They, they think McDonald's is good. Anyway, I mean, we got these huge pieces of pizza. We were so excited because this was the best ever. We went back to our seat and we sat down and, uh, and they had these little stool, uh, like four 
uh, seat. We sat down across from each other and two teenage boys came up and sat down right beside us and just looked at us. And we were sitting with our pizza. We're like, uh, what? And they were like probably late teens, you know, and we're like, what? What? And they said, um, give us that pizza. And we said, uh, okay, (laughs) they stole our pizza. Frat boys often have a deservedly bad reputation. But would you not know that among those of us who have bad judgment, there's still potential for the heroic? And among those of us who don't have everything together and we do dumb things, there's still a potential for heroic. Let me tell you about another, uh, uh, let me tell you another story, Borderline Bar and Grill in Southern California, uh, just over uh, two years ago, had a mass shooting where there was a young man, very troubled, very broken, 28 years old, lost, lonely, all of the boxes you would check of a troubled person. He knew that Borderline Bar and Grill, was their college night was Wednesday night, and uh, he hated them, and he was filled with rage, and he, he got his various tools of death together, and he loaded his uh, pistol with a uh, 28-round magazine, and he uh, took smoke grenades, and he walked up to the door of the sports bar, and he threw the smoke grenades in, and once the screaming started, he walked in, and he started killing people with his, uh, with his weapons, and uh, the college kids, the young boys, those same boys that would drive by you too fast and you would roll your eyes, those same boys who would have judgment problems uh, in determining what is worth the risk and what is not worth the risk, the same boys who could do all of the dumb things that young boys do, young men do, the same boys realized what was happening and began herding people together and forming a wall in front of them with their own bodies, and they began trying to usher people out and they gathered up uh, in one place behind a pool table they gathered up a a group of people and they knelt in front of them and covered those people with their body as that man came through trying to kill and when they saw a a, a side door they began uh, ushering people out and coming back in and and getting people who were cowering behind uh, the the pool tables and covering them with their own bodies and leading them out and they saved uh, perhaps 30 or 40 lives and some of of them were shot. If you would have watched an interview after this, hap- this event that happened two years ago, you would have found a young man interviewed by the name of Matt, and he, 20-year-old, typical college kid, you see him on the interview, and he looks like exactly what he is, backward baseball cap, gray t-shirt, jaw scruffy with a few days of whiskers that he's super proud of, and he's everything you would think that he is, but in that moment, in spite of every dumb thing it ever done over the summer, in spite of every insecure act he had ever been involved in, every, in spite of every time he had laughed when someone shouldn't have laughed and he helped when someone should have helped, in spite of all his flaws in that moment, he rose and he became a hero and saved people by shielding them with his own body. If this is true of the weakest, shall we say, of us in terms of judgment, in terms of of, of, shall we even say maturity, if they in that moment can arise, I want to use this as an example, that heroism is not simply the province of people who have everything perfectly organized. It's not the province of people who always make good decisions. It's simply the province of people who see something that needs to happen and nominates themselves to make a difference. You see, the secret of the hero is not that they're perfect. It's that they're willing to try to make a difference. It's not that they know everything to do. It's that they're willing to try. They're willing to risk. Let me say it again and hope somebody hears it today. Your world needs a hero. It doesn't need necessarily a perfect person. It needs a hero. It doesn't matter if you have a past you're not particularly proud of. Your world needs a hero. Maybe you don't know the scripture as much as you would like to. Your world needs a hero. And the Bible is showing you story after story of surprise heroes. People no one expected, 
but they were willing. Whether it's young David showing up with food for his older brother and as the army is intimidated by Goliath and this young teenage boy who really came to deliver food and make fun of his brothers realizes there is a giant that is causing the whole nation to tremble and shame the God who said it was their land. And he decided he would stand up and everyone laughed at him and he became a surprise hero. Or whether it is Gideon who is hiding from the enemy in a cave and the angel of the Lord comes and says, oh, mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, is there someone else here? I'm hiding in a cave. I am not even out there. And the angel is insistent that God sees something in Gideon that Gideon does not see. I'm sure Gideon could make an argument that you need to find someone who's been an example, someone whose decisions have shown a better path. Don't choose me. I'm not a good example. I want to preach to somebody and hope the spirit knocks on the door of your heart and say, quit and say to you this quit stop quit hindering the moving of God through you because you say I haven't been a perfect example being a hero is not about being perfect it's about being willing Jesus invites you to believe that greater works, even than his own works, are possible. And we read it together. Greater works than these will he do. Who? He who believes. Speaking spiritually, this is hero language. This is hero language. Greater works than these shall you do. Imagine the strongest man in the village lifting a weight no one can lift and then kneeling down beside a small boy and saying, buddy, I just want you to know one day you're going to be stronger than me. This is hero talk. This is hero language. It is the invitation to try. Your world needs a hero. I want to say that. I want you to believe that your world needs a hero and God has nominated you because he has given you the power and the authority that you will manifest and he has placed you in your world, not someone else's world, in your world. God has nominated you to be a hero. You say, what does that mean? Okay, I'm thinking about it, preacher. You're making me consider this here for a moment that I could, I could, I could perhaps make a difference for the kingdom of God. What does a hero do? I'm really glad you asked, so I'm going to tell you because I prepared to ask this question uh, for you. And here is the first thing of three things that a spiritual hero does. I want you to see these as concepts. The first thing a hero does is uphold the promises of God by their words. Remember the scripture that speaks of the power of God and it is uh, written in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews and, and the writer of Hebrews is saying that God has revealed himself in these last days through his son and uh, the son of God Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of God's person and then this is said Upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding all things by the word of his power. If you want to understand divine power, you have to understand the power of divine word because that is the expression of God's intention. Word is the expressed intentionality of God. And so in the beginning, stay with me, I'm going to spend a moment in a deep part of the pool and then we'll get back to, you know, the point I'm trying to make here today. God said, in the beginning what let there be light he doesn't think let there be light he says let there be light because it is expressed intention and what happens when God expresses intention the universe leaps to obey divine intention and all things that are are the way they are because God spoke and said let there be there is a beautiful symmetry here which I don't have time to explain Explore today. I just want to touch it for you to consider because I, I love showing the beauty that's in uh, the things of God. I think uh, that can lead people to God, understanding the 
beauty. There is a, a spiritual symmetry here where we are in the image of God and we stand in his stead. He upholds all things by the word of his power and we uphold his witness and testimony by our word. Our word upholds the promises of God. Your world needs somebody who can look doubt in the face and say, I believe the promises of God. Your word will speak a different reality into a world of chaos. I want you to see this. God comes to a creation. It's not that nothing exists. It is that it is without form and void and darkness lays upon the depths thereof. And what does God do? The spirit begins to move and intentionality is spoken the word of God let there be light and into chaos and confusion and darkness and despair spiritual clarity is spoken and creation obeys that you like God in his image stand in a world of chaos and confusion and darkness upon the deep and what do you do you speak the promises of God to the chaos of your world where there is fear you say God is with you be not afraid where there is anxiety you say he will never leave you nor will he forsake you where there is sickness you say I serve the great physician where there is brokenness you say God can put you back together you stand in the chaos and your testimony says God can change everything The first act of the hero is to uphold the promises of God by the words they speak. So when the world around you is terrorized, you say, my God is able. He didn't bring us this far to leave us. Your lived faith, are you hearing me today? Your lived faith is to be the person in your neighborhood who speaks love in the face of hatred and confidence in the face of despair and promise in the face of fear. You speak heroic language. Oh, I feel the spirit here today. I, I wish y'all were preaching as good as I'm preaching. See, that's how you give yourself a compliment and you keep right on going. I, that's right. I learned that from some of you guys. Anyway, we uphold the promises of God and we do it with our testimony. Secondly, well, let me, let me give you another passage for that, upholding the promises of God by our word. This is uh, Isaiah 62 and 6. This is New Living Translation. O Jerusalem, I have posted watchmen on your walls. They will pray day and night continually. Take no rest, all you who pray to the Lord. In other translations, that is written as though you are continually upholding what God has said he was going to do. It's not so God. God is reminded he never forgets. It's so his word, which is spoken in heaven, resonates here on earth in your world. Someone needs to speak, echo, repeat the voice of God, and that is you. The second thing the spiritual hero does is we plead for justice on behalf of another. We speak as the spiritually heroic. We plead for justice on the behalf of another and by doing so we reveal the heart of God and testify of God's justice in opposition to this world's justice. Uh, Isaiah 59 verse number 14 through 16. Our courts, I'm again I'm reading New Living Translation so you hear it with fresh ears. Our courts oppose the righteous the prophet says speaking to the imperfect justice of the day and justice is nowhere to be found. Truth stumbles in the streets and honesty has been outlawed. Yes, Truth is gone, and anyone who renounces evil is attacked. The Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. 
He looked and he was displeased to find there was no justice. He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. No one cared for anyone except themselves. No one cared about the oppressed. There was no voice of justice for the person who had no voice to speak for themselves. God was looking for someone who would manifest his heart in this world because this world needed a hero. This world needed the heroic act of an imperfect person to manifest another truth and another promise, the promise of God here on this earth. He was amazed that no one intervened to help the oppressed, so he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm and his justice sustained him. You should be aware of the brokenness in your world and you should be the one who calls out for freedom for the oppressed. It should not just be the voice of God that wants the captive to be set free. It should be your voice who says, uh, my God can set you free. It should not just be God's voice speaking to the addicted, speaking to the trapped, speaking to the helpless, saying that he will save them. It should be your voice standing and echoing heaven. Is anybody hearing what I'm laying down here today? You should be echoing heaven saying, God can set you free. You've pled for justice. Third, you plead for mercy. The number one, the first thing you do is you uphold the promises of God in your world with your voice. The second thing you do, you plead for justice against the oppressor. We pray against the works of darkness. We pray against the powers of hell. We pray for deliverance to the captive and we pray for mercy to the oppressor. In other words, this world is filled with sin and yet the sinners are are our harvest. Oh, if you don't get that, this preacher and this church is going to drive you nuts because that's what we are all about. The sinners in your world are not your enemy. They are your harvest. And so you pray for justice for the oppressed and you pray for mercy for the oppressor. In this manner, you stand as a spiritual hero in your world. Let me show you another scripture on this pleading for mercy. We literally, as an intercessor, we hold back judgment. You see, God is not a man that he should lie. God won't say he's going to judge the sinner and then not judge the sinner. The debt will be paid if heaven has to pay it itself. Do you see? God will not break his own laws because he's not a man that he should lie. We're the ones who make a rule and then change it. That's not how God operates because his word expresses his nature. We have a conflict within us as to who we are and there are different potentials that war within us and we want to pray more but we want to watch more YouTube and we want to fast more but we want to try that new restaurant and we have this warring within us. That is not how God operates. God is not at war with himself and so when he speaks it is both justice and mercy that is fulfilled in his word. Not just justice and not just mercy, but there is a theological reconciliation in the voice of God. And so, watch this. When he says there is a judgment for sin, the day that you sin, you shall surely die, the price will be paid. The only way we're getting out of anything is to try to find someone who can pay the price for us. Watch this. Ezekiel chapter number 22 and verse number 30. I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. Righteousness guards the land from what? Judgment. Judgment brings destruction to the transgressor. What guards the transgressor? Righteousness. Why is there only one who is good and there's only one who can wash away your sins? Because your sins is guarded mm, I wish I could preach by his righteousness. You see? 
You see, I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness in the land. I searched, I searched, somebody say God searched. I searched for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land, but I found no one. I want you to see the work of an intercessor that is shown to us in image here. You become a hero, not when you're perfect, not when you know enough Bible to teach a good Bible study. You stand as a hero when you stand in the stead of another person. You proclaim the promises of God and you plead for justice and for mercy. You're no longer just worried about you and yours. You're no longer adding up how much money you have in your bank account. Your eyes have been opened to the fact that you are here for a reason and the reason is the world you are placed within. This is what it means to be a spiritual hero, to make a difference in a world, or to use a churchy word that we like to use. This is the work of an intercessor, the hero of the church, the hero of the kingdom of God is not someone who has everything, but someone who sees everyone's need. Not someone who counts the notches on their gun belt, but someone who sees the demons that need to be slayed in Jesus' name. Not someone who swaggers through the harvest field, proud of how good they are, but someone who weeps as they walk through the harvest field and says, just as you saved me, oh God, would you save these sinners? This is the work of the hero and your world needs a hero and God has nominated you. Real quick, let me tell you two stories from the Bible. This is from the life of Abraham. Abraham is important because his life is a type by which we learn from. It's not that he himself was powerful in the sense of uh, apostle. Uh, he was not an apostle. In fact, uh, Abraham did not perform one miracle in the manner of an apostle. It wasn't that he had a great missionary journey like Paul. He had no missionary journey. He was a seeker and a searcher. He had no claim to truth. He doesn't even know a title for God until he meets Melchizedek. We'll talk about that again more. But what he has in symbol is a passion for the things of God and a desire to incline his ear to hear the whispered invitation to God. And so you look at the life of Abraham as a father of faith, symbolizing a way of living for that world, not this world. And he seems uh, disturbingly ordinary, leads no nation. Yes, father of a nation, but let's be honest, uh, he had one son. That would be uh, one legitimate son by covenant. He had another son uh, of, of doubt, you might say. Uh, this is his legacy that uh, he had promise, but it was always over the horizon. And he shows us what it means to be a person of faith. He marshals no army. He founds no great church. He preaches no revival. He performs no miracles. He has no missionary journeys. Furthermore, we know more about his sins and his failings than any other patriarch. And it's almost as though he makes similar sins, um, similar errors more than once. He starts out in disobedience. God told him to leave his family behind and seek God with just his immediate family. He disobeyed that and it costs him later and God uses it to bring good out of a bad situation. We read about his disobedience. We read that he has an honesty problem. He tells lies. We read that he struggles with doubt. This is shown in various passages of his life. We, we read how he partially obeys God. God tells him to go here, but he doesn't go all the way. He goes halfway and kind of pitches a tent. Uh, then we have the whole Hagar story, which is uh, a very living testimony to doubt and despair, trying to do in the flesh what can only be done in the spirit. Then we have the awful story of him being a deadbeat dad. Uh, we know about that. And then he ends his story with the same mistake he made at the beginning, lying about his wife, not to Pharaoh this time, but to a guy named Abathar. You see so much of his error. You see so much of his mistakes. You see his doubt. You see his despair. And yet the Bible calls him God's friend. Yeah. 
The Bible calls him three times, different places, over 1,500 different years, that Abraham was the friend of God. I want to show you Abraham becoming more than just a seeker. I want to show you Abraham becoming an intercessor. So the first story I have to tell you is found in Genesis chapter number 18. Really quickly, Abraham has had a a falling out with his nephew Lot. Uh, They have disagreement about grazing lands and watering rights. Uh, This is not uncommon. There are lawsuits even today about these kinds of things. And this time it caused conflict and the herdsmen of uh, Abraham quarreled with the herdsmen of Lot and uh, they decided to part ways and Lot did Uncle Abraham wrong. Uh, he did not really go for an equitable distribution, but instead he, he negotiated in a manner where he should not have negotiated. Uh, there are some relationships in your life you have to be careful of negotiating in because it's not the nature of the relationship to negotiate. And this is the circumstance here. And so Abraham takes whatever Lot doesn't want. Lot takes the wealthy plains uh, that end in Sodom and Gomorrah and they divide, and it would have been so easy for Abraham to have aught in his heart against his young nephew Lot, who he has given everything to, and this is how he is treated. But four kings of Mesopotamia invade south, and they come to the wealthy cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're leading four armies. They destroy the city, and they take captive the inhabitants of the city, including Lot and his family. Abraham hears, and Abraham is moved with worry and concern for his nephew. Abraham is going to change roles and now become the heroic rescuer. He doesn't have an army himself, but he does have his household servants, which live with him in the manner of a tribe, but not in the manner of slaves. The way we know this is because they were armed and you don't arm people who hate you. That's a quick way to die, in case you were wondering. His household servants, they lived as a tribe and not as slave, and he took 318 of his servants and he tracked the four kings and their victorious armies until at a strategic place Abraham risked it all and he led 300 non-professional soldiers uh, in an attack against the four kings of Mesopotamia and Lot and his household are rescued. This is the first act of intercession you see in the life of Abraham and God responds to this by immediately sending Mesopotamia Melchizedek, king of Salem, the city of peace, the city of God, to meet with Abraham, having heard what Abraham has done. Abraham's next step of revelation, it's through Melchizedek that he's instructed in ways of righteousness. It is through Melchizedek that he has a title for God. After Melchizedek, he comes out and he says to the four kings of Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, I have made a vow to the most high God. Where did that come from? Never mentioned before. It came from Melchizedek, who was a priest to the Most High God. Abraham's next step comes through standing as an intercessor for someone he cares about. His next step of revelation, his next step of blessing is Abraham risking it all for someone else. But it's very natural for us to care about our family. That's fairly easy. All of us can get a burden for our own kids, right? God knows they need Jesus. We can all get, uh, we all can get concerned about our own families. We all can cry over our own loved ones, but it's not as easy to care about people you don't know. Uh, We have to really be close to the heart of God to start getting a burden about people we've never met. We have to be spiritually becoming in his likeness and in his image to love a stranger as a brother and be willing to lay down our life for a friend we've never met. Who we say in our defense is our neighbor. And God tells us a story of a man risking everything to save another man he's never met, but he just happened along the way. You see, to become like God is to realize that you've been nominated as a spiritual hero and to be willing to risk it for others, willing to pray for others, willing to intercede for others. You have been awakened to the nature of the spiritual heroic moment, which is you standing in the gap for someone else, pleading the blood over them, proclaiming justice and mercy and the promises of God in their broken land. 
Abraham, for the first time, has become an intercessor. But that's not the end of his becoming. Uh, Several chapters later, you will see Abraham again. It's long since past the day where Sodom and Gomorrah has been wrecked by an enemy. Uh, it's years past that. The city is restored. It's, they are once again uh, wealthy and sinful. And judgment must come to the sin that is continually offered to God. And the Lord visits with Abraham. And the Lord says to Abraham in chapter 18, verse number 20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Evidently, in the heavenlies, in the language that the Old Testament often uses to describe a heavenly court of spiritual beings that all represent a heavenly court, some in rebellion, some in submission, but a contest of the eternal. Don't have time to preach this, just want to touch it. In that realm, hell is bragging about their prized cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And judgment demands its due. And here comes God to see. This is all in poetic spiritual language, but you must see the underlying themes, the thematic Truths that undergird the story. Uh, and they are going to see if it's as bad as hell has been bragging it is. And God turns away and starts towards Sodom. God is represented by a theophany of three men, which just understand a theophany is theological language for when God takes on the image that can be understood by human eyes to represent his nature and his deity. And these three men turn towards Sodom and Abraham remains standing before God. Abraham remains standing before God and he takes a chance. He risks it all. You don't brashly approach God in the Old Testament. Oh, we're spoiled now. We talk about love and grace so much we started to believe it. <laughs> but in the Old Testament, you don't just rush up to God. You, you have a sense of the fear of the Lord. And Abraham takes a chance in the majesty of God's own presence and he steps forward and he remains standing there and he says to the Lord, verse 23, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous in it far be it from you to do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked treating the righteous and the wicked alike far be it from you will not the judge of all the earth do right Abraham's no longer worried just about his family here's the crazy thing you need to see if you want to understand the deep waters of the spiritual hero here Lot and his family are going to be saved by God Abraham is going to know that Lot and his family are saved. Abraham is not being moved by concern for people he knows and he's met and are his, his family, his blood. He's concerned about people he's never met. You want to understand why Abraham's called the friend of God? I'll tell you why. Because over the years, Abraham has become more like God. And when God looks for someone to speak mercy over his creation he is happy to see Abraham standing in the gap saying this isn't about me oh Lord this isn't about me and mine oh Lord I have been placed to speak your promise in this land and your promise is it's not your will that any would perish and your promise is that you so love the world that you gave your only begotten son I stand in this world oh let us hear it today oh God and I speak your truth to this broken world and I say God loves you so much he's willing to be the righteousness you don't have so you might meet mercy God's looking for a man who can be a hero 
And here's Abraham taking a chance. He's not just worried about his kids anymore. He's grown up spiritually into something that God says, that man is like me. That man is my friend. I'm not just trying to see how I can get more. I'm not just trying to count the money I have in the bank. I'm seeing the needs everywhere. I'm not just putting notches on my spiritual gun belt, how powerful I am. But I see everywhere I go that the world is broken under the teeth of hell and they crush and they destroy these workers of rebellion these demonic forces oppress and destroy and kill and murder and I am standing here today not very powerful and not very mighty but I am saying this God is my refuge and strength I'm saying this fall upon this rock and be broken I say this repent of your sins and receive water that takes away every thirst. I speak the promises of God in this broken land and I plead for justice for the oppressed. I see the forces of hell that are destroying and killing and I pray for mercy for the sinners caught up in the dog-eat-dog world, the painful hierarchical struggles of the haves and the have-nots, the fears and the tribal hatreds and the human pettiness. I don't just hate everybody. I see the brokenness of the world and my heart breaks. And I say, God... None of us are worth saving. But there's one who is good. You paid our debt that we get to be saved down here. You washed us. You stand in the gap as an intercessor for your world. You make a difference in your world. Abraham has moved beyond just caring for the people near. He's now able to see the people he doesn't even know. And he stands as a good Samaritan. He binds up their wounds. He pays their debts. And he says, I will return. This is spiritual hero talk. Musicians come. Let me close with this. You guys know I love in my preaching as best as I can. And sometimes it's not very good. As best as I can, I want to unpack the great, beautiful themes of Scripture. And I want to give you a sense of, ah, there's this beautiful completeness and symmetry in the work of God. I, I, I want to do that. Sometimes I, sometimes I do better than others, but I want to do that. But when I get to the point where you have begun to see or perhaps uh, enjoy in the manner I enjoyed in my study, you begin to see this. I've got to leave you with something practical because it's not enough for us to know we have to do. It's not enough for us to celebrate. We have to interact with the world in which we are placed. I want to give you five simple things that you could start doing right now to be a spiritual hero in your world because God placed you there and he nominated you as the do, to do it. These are five practical things you could start doing right now because your world needs heroes. Number one, you need to grow in friendship with the Lord. How do you do that? You've got to spend time in his presence. Abraham is changed by his years seeking after God. And in the end, Abraham has become that which God has always sought for him to be. And the roles have been reversed where Abraham represents the mercy of God before the face of God. I want you to see how Abraham has become. He has become that one who God was searching for, who stands in the gap, speaks the promises of God, pleads mercy, pleads justice. He has become. He has done that by spending time with God. That's number one. Grow in your friendship with the Lord. It will be less difficult for you to see people as needing God rather than seeing people as pains in your neck. The second thing that you can do practically right now, grow in your ability to be still and listen. Being still and listen is a way of opening the door of your life to allow the Spirit to come in. I don't want to rush past this because I think sometimes we think the path 
to the spirit of the Lord is something that we perceive as, as powerful. And that's great because that involves our emotion and we need that. That's why we have church the way we do. But I want you to see in our day-to-day life, you can't carry a choir with you. <laughs> you can't carry a praise team with you unless you are the praise team. You can't take the preacher with you because I am not going with you all week. You will wear me out. You understand what I'm saying? What do you do then when you don't have that emotional cue that allows you to feel what we talk about good church or powerful or as a mighty spirit of the when we don't have that what do we do you need to practice being still and listening to God pursuing his spirit the third thing you need to every day build your life upon eternal values not worldly distractions you will never be an intercessor caring too much about this world I wish there was another way. I wish you could have your cake and eat it too, but that is just not how it works. You cannot serve God and mammon. You'll love one and hate the other. It does not work that way. Daily, you must remind yourself, I am a stranger and a pilgrim. In other words, Abraham, don't build a house. Don't buy a couch. Stay in the tent. This world is not your home. If you want to build something permanent, let it be an altar. Build an altar. Let that be permanent, but don't build a house. Live in your tent. This world is not your home. It will allow you to value your life by the standards of another kingdom. Pursue a higher kingdom. Seek eternal things. Remind yourself every day this world is not your home. Number four, this is so important. Practice peace with people, even the ones who have done you wrong. Abraham's path to spiritual heroism, or shall we say, standing as an intercessor, one who stands in the gap for someone else. His path is to forgive a family member who has done him wrong. Abraham could have sat back and said, he deserves it. That's how some of us live and walk. God forgive us. He could have calculated how Lot got what he deserved. He could have washed his hands and said, well, that was always going to happen. But no, the hero isn't interested in who did who wrong. He or she isn't interested in how the mess was made. Lot says, my family is in captivity and oppression. I will risk everything to save them. If you do not make peace with people who have done you wrong, you are unable to see how their circumstances have changed enough where you become the voice of God in their life. That's practical. You can use that right now. Number five, if you are not practicing spiritual empathy for every person you meet, even the people that disgust you, you are missing the role of spiritual heroism in your life because you will never pray an intercessory prayer for someone you don't have any feeling or care for. You must practice empathy. Even the person bound in the ugliest sin, don't be impressed by their sin. Be impressed by your Savior. Practice the person who is trapped in the worst addiction, the person who makes the most pitiful life choices, that your own, your own flesh wants to crawl when you think about it. Stop yourself and say, God can save them. And Lord, I want to tell you right now, I'm not too good to be involved in their salvation. Your world needs a hero. And if this hour is going to see revival, then the church is going to have to quit walking through the harvest field so pleased with itself and so proud of itself and so impressed with itself. We're going to have to go forth weeping, weeping, bearing precious seed. We have to go forward as a hero saying, God, I want to stand in the gap. Stand with me all across the house. At the lowest, most simple understanding, the job of the spiritual hero is to stand in the midst of chaos, despair, fear, broken hearts, sin, and call on the name of Jesus. 
you see the greater the darkness, the brighter the light. At the simplest, most brass tack understanding. The spiritual hero doesn't go to the mirror and see whether or not their armor is polished. It may need polishing and maybe you should think about that. But that's not what the moment of the hero calls for. You stand in the chaos and you say, Jesus, our world needs you. Jesus, my neighbor is an alcoholic and they think no one knows. But I plead for mercy for them. They're oppressed. They're in bondage of this addiction. I speak against that bondage and I pray against that stronghold of the enemy. However it's being manifest, I speak against it in Jesus' name. I plead your mercy for them, Lord Jesus. It breaks me to think they won't know you. And so I stand before you and I say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. (laughs) Have mercy on them. I say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. I stand here as a testimony to spiritual transformation. And I don't speak what's in my mouth. I speak your word, your promise to this broken world as testimony that you can do anything. You can save from the uttermost to the guttermost. You can save from high to low. There's no addiction that can withstand your grace. There's no sin that can withstand your mercy. And I plead the blood for my world. I don't feel very heroic, oh God, but my world needs mercy. I don't feel very powerful, oh God, but my world needs mercy. My neighborhood needs mercy. My family needs mercy. This preacher needs mercy. This church needs mercy. I plead the blood over the city of Charlotte. I plead the blood over this crazy year of infection. I plead the blood over this nation. I plead the blood over this world that you died, you loved so much you died for. I stand. I don't feel like a hero. I feel like I don't know what I'm doing half the time. But I ask you, let revival fall like rain. Let your justice come like rain. Let your mercy fall like rain. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.